0: met before my name is Cassie Farron and my husband Alex and I get to pastor this Jesus community together so we're so glad to have you here. Uh, Whether you're new with us today you've been around for a while you don't know Jesus very well you followed him before a long time you followed him for a while and then are kind of coming back again after not knowing him for some time this scripture verse that we just read is really weird. (laughs) Can we acknowledge that? It's a strange one. Like, this is one of those scripture verses that you're like, I'd rather just not read that one, pretend it's not in the Bible, and then we can just go on with our day, right? It's a whole lot easier to pretend like this one doesn't exist. I don't know about you, but when I hear scripture read like this, or when I read it in my Bible, many times... I have what I like to call a supernatural skepticism creep into my heart and into my mind. There's actually a song written by a guy named Chris Renzema called Holy Ghost, and I think he summarizes this supernatural skepticism really well. He says, I've always been a little cynical. They say I've got a skeptical nature. It doesn't mean I'm not hopeful, just means that I'm a cautious believer. And it's the craziest thing that after all I've seen, I still want to believe that the Holy Ghost keeps haunting me. Although there are many who sit on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to the Holy Spirit and even the interpretation of the passage just read, I think most of us probably sit in this middle ground. We may have a skeptical nature We may be cautious believers, but we still want to believe that the Holy Spirit is at work today. We want to believe that he's not just here in our hearts and in our minds, but he's actually in our tangible, physical lives. There may also be some here today who are exploring the faith for the first time, and so you don't have this cultural baggage that many of us do. And for that, I would say, good for you. I'm happy for you. But regardless of which camp you find yourself in, reading scriptures like these can be perplexing, confusing, bewildering. It's easier to just cast them aside instead of leaning in. But I found many times in life that when something in the Bible feels confusing or frustrating or maybe even wrong, leaning in and digging deeper brings about profound life-giving truth. That when we lean into things that feel a bit uncomfortable, it can further our faith and even deepen our relationship with God. And so, here would be my invitation today. Don't run, don't hide from the haunting of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> but lean in. Open yourself up to this story of scripture. And who knows, you may even find something That's really powerful and meaningful for your life today. And so if you would turn with me to Acts chapter one, verse one, you can also utilize your phone or go to that QR code on the back of your seat. There's a button that says uh, today's liturgy. You can click on that. There's sermon notes that you can follow along with. But we're going to start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. Anybody sound of music? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I was like, should, does anyone know that anymore? Should I insert that? theater kid at heart. Uh, Just for context, we have been going through a series called Come Holy Spirit for the last uh, several months this fall, and specifically we've been tracing the person of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, starting with Genesis and working slowly toward Revelation. And today we find ourselves in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, And depending on your context growing up, you've either been dreading me getting to this book, or you've been really looking forward to it. One of the two. And so today, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, with Luke writing this. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is the individual he is writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So I want to pause right here so that we can learn a few things about the book of Acts. So best we can tell, it was written by the Apostle Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke that Alex referenced last week. And Luke was actually a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. So he is seeing a lot of this full, like first knowledge, firsthand hand. And so he's writing about the events that he is seeing at work, but like any good author, he takes some time to recap what he's previously talked about in his first volume, Luke, and to preview what he's about to talk about in his second volume, Acts. Alex spent last week kind of unpacking that volume of Luke, specifically looking at the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. And we learned that the Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to do the things he did on earth is the same spirit that empowers us today. And so in that same posture in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, this is what happened in my gospel of Luke And this is what's going to continue happening in my gospel of Acts, or my book of Acts. For those who think that the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit book, it may surprise you to see how Luke begins this book. He begins this book by saying, Jesus is the main character. This book will detail the instruction Jesus gave to his disciples through his spirit. And this may seem kind of odd because Jesus is only physically present in the first nine verses of Acts, but this is not a mistake on Luke's part. In fact, Luke is emphasizing one of the most important things about the book of Acts, and it is this. Acts is only all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. It's all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his Spirit. Many scholars have actually commented that Acts should be known not as the Acts of the Apostles or the deeds of the Apostles, but of the Acts of Jesus part two, or the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so it's with that knowledge and understanding of the book of Acts that we continue to read. Let's pick up in verse three. Luke writes, Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples after his suffering, his death on the cross, by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Side note, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during those 40 days. No idea what Jesus talked about, but I'm sure it was great. In verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is what we know as Jesus' ascension into the heavenly realms or God's space, the place in which Jesus sits at the right hand of God, fully reigning as king. And this brings us to the first part of our story today, part one, the promise of Pentecost. The promise of Pentecost. I want to uh, define Pentecost very briefly for you right now, but I'm going to spend a bit more time on that as we get further in our sermon today. But Pentecost, in its most simple of terms, is the day in which the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples and many come to follow Jesus as a result. And the story of Acts begins with Jesus promising that this will happen. He promises Pentecost. But this promise was not what the disciples were expecting. This is likely why they ask Jesus, Is it time for the kingdom of Israel to rule all other nations with you as king? See, the disciples had seen Jesus like they had seen King David in the Old Testament. And so they expected a king who would rescue them from the oppressive Roman Empire and lead them. And by proxy, the disciples were expending to, expecting to have top jobs in Jesus' government. Like, are we ready, right? I'm about to get that promotion, But as the scripture and even my own life have revealed, God does not often come in the way that we expect him to. And the disciples did not expect that Jesus was going to die a violent death. They did not expect that he was going to rise again. And they're wondering, what does all of this mean? Like there was a playbook, you didn't follow it, and now I'm super confused. And this is where Jesus explains that he came not to assume an earthly throne through sword and blood, but to become king of all the world by giving up his life and then conquering death with his love. He did not come to merely conquer a people group or a nation, but conquer the very thing, death, itself. And so Jesus returns from the dead, not just as king of our hearts, but also king of the whole world. And we see evidence of his reign as he begins bringing about his kingdom slowly in and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So in one sense, this has already happened, Jesus has become king, but in another sense, his full kingship has yet to happen because we are still all waiting for the whole world to be visibly and clearly living under God's just and healing world. We're waiting for it to all be redeemed. So, this is why Jesus says, Be my witnesses from here until the end of the earth, in my already but not yet reign. He says, Announce that I am redeeming people's lives and that I will one day come back again to redeem the whole world. And so, Jesus gives his disciples an agenda. He says, first, reach Jerusalem, your hometown, then go to Judea, the surrounding countryside, and then go to Samaria, the culturally hated foreigners living right next door to you. Yes, and tell them about my good news. Tell them about my gospel. Many scholars actually suggest that This is Luke's outline or his thesis for the book of Acts Jerusalem, Judea, and then the surrounding areas, Samaria and beyond. And so Jesus promises to give them Pentecost or the Holy Spirit to help them do this, to help them be his witnesses throughout the world and this leads us to part two of our story the preparation of pentecost the preparation of pentecost continuing acts 2 tells us that the disciples come from the mount of olives where jesus has ascended into the heavenly realms to jerusalem they come to jerusalem and while in jerusalem it says jesus's followers peter John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Jesus' mother Mary, his half brothers, and other women disciples gathered to wait for the promise of Pentecost. And while they were waiting, verse 14, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And this points to a frequent theme in the Luke's Luke Acts narrative. And that is this prayer precedes the coming of the Spirit. Prayer precedes the coming of the Spirit. A few examples of this, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22, mentions that the Spirit descended on Jesus when he was praying. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we see believers pray together and are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, verse 15, Peter and John pray for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit, and they do. Saul is filled with the Spirit in Acts 9, verse 17, after being devoted to prayer in verse 11. The Spirit falls on a man named Cornelius and his house guests in Acts 10, verse 44, after he's been praying in 10.33. Although Luke does not always associate the Spirit with prayer, the connection is frequent enough to reinforce its importance. Prayer is the mean by which we pray for Pentecost. Prayer is the means by which we prepare for Pentecost. Pentecost. And we see this reinforced not just in the scriptures, but throughout history when we look at contemporary and historic revivals or renewals of the Spirit at work in our lives today. So prayer, that preparation of Pentecost, precedes these outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to part three of our story, the proofs of Pentecost, or the evidence of the proofs of Pentecost. Luke picks up in Acts chapter 2, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, saying this, "'When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting.' And divided tongues as fire, so you can picture flames, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitudes came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language?" Here, Luke provides in his account three proofs or evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they are wind, fire, and tongues. And we're going to get to these in a moment, but first I do want to give just a brief aside on Pentecost. So notice Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived... So although the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has become known as the first Pentecost, Pentecost itself began as a Jewish holiday. It was the 50th day after Passover, and it was an agricultural festival in which farmers brought their first fruits to the temple as a way of thanking God for their provision and giving an offering to him. But like many Jewish uh, holidays, this festival had a double meaning. It also commemorated the moment the Israelites received the law from Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Fifty days after the first Passover. And so Pentecost, this 50th day after, Pente- uh, after Passover, is not just about first fruits, but it's also about God giving his people a new way of living. One that's not dominated by the enslaved Uh, rhetoric of that day in Egypt, but one that is a whole new way of life, not based on production, not based on what you can do, but based on who you love, God and neighbor. And so it's no accident that God pours out the Holy Spirit on his disciples during the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. God is giving his people a new way of living, the law fulfilled and furthered by the person of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we will see, there will be a great harvest as people come to follow Jesus. And so we get to our three proofs or the evidence that this happened. Three signs publicly demonstrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see wind in verse 2. We see fire in verse 3. And then we see worship in languages unknown to the speaker in verse 4. And I want to spend a bulk of my time on the last one because, frankly, it's the most confusing. But it is really important to talk about the first two. So wind often signifies creation in the biblical narrative. We learned this when we looked at the Holy Spirit in Genesis at the beginning of this series. And then fire often signifies purification or refinement. Think like a potter and a clay, right? Molding into a product. And so we're to understand this scene on both a physical but also on a metaphorical level. Though the holy through the holy spirit god is refining us fire to help bring about new creation wind right or the recreation of the world Additionally wind and fire were often associated with God's filling of the temple and thus we are to understand that God's presence no longer dwells in the table or in the temple excuse me where few had access but it dwells in his disciples in us we have all become temples and it is now that we come to the strangest of proofs tongues particularly in the Pentecostal and charismatic branch of Christianity, which, full disclaimer, I, I, I do belong to, uh, tongues has, been, has taken an outsized role in this story. Many have made tongues the outcome of the Acts 2 narrative instead of the vehicle by which witness to Jesus Christ occurs. In the spring, we're actually going to spend some more time understanding this phenomenon of tongues as well as prophecy, healing, and other gifts that Paul specifically mentions. However, today we do need to address tongues as it plays a vital role in this Acts 2 story. So I want to begin by just trying to place ourselves in the story. Okay, so place yourself in the scene. The disciples are likely at the temple during the day of Pentecost, where the crowds of people are gathered from all over the world. And they receive the Holy Spirit and begin preaching the good news and the gospel. But instead of needing interpreters so that they could be understood by all, everyone is able to hear the good news in their own language. And this is what we know in the English translation as the Holy Spirit's gift of tongues. Now, I want to acknowledge that tongues seems like a weird word in the English language to apply to what's happening here. Like, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word tongue, I think about the physical thing in my mouth, and I rarely refer to it in its plural form. Like, our tongues, that's weird, okay? I hope nobody in here has multiple tongues. I'm so sorry if you do. That sounds hard. Um, (laughs) so tongues may be better understood in scripture as unlearned languages. I think actually Eugene Peterson provides a really helpful paraphrase of this section, and so I want to read his version from the message, Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came run on the run. Then when they heard one after another, their own mother tongues, so think mother language or heart language here, first language, being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what was going on and kept saying, aren't these Galileans? How come they're hearing, we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues or heart languages? And those tongues here should be understood as worship in languages unknown to the speakers given by the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts, as we will see, uh, shows these tongues being earthly languages in this example, but also as heavenly languages in other examples throughout Acts in the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, this was still super weird, Like, this was not normative in Jewish culture in ancient Israel. No, 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 no. This was very strange. And this is why many ask in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, are these people drunk? That's what it says. It says, are these people drunk? Like, this is weird. But it is this strange and confusing outpouring of the Holy Spirit That prompts Peter to explain what is happening, and most importantly, for others to listen. He says the Spirit gave them this gift of language so that all people could come to know God. That's powerful. Picking up in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, Peter explains this, and he quotes the prophet of Joel saying, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter says, young, old, rich, poor, men, women, wrongfully enslaved, and free, all can experience the outpouring of my presence, the Holy Spirit's presence. Tongues, therefore, is the vehicle for a multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic movement of God. All people can now know Jesus in their heart language. And this communicates an essential truth. In the words of Craig Keener, worshiping God in other people's languages shows that God has empowered the church to cross all cultural and linguistic barriers with his gospel. As mentioned previously, prayer often precedes outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And similarly, diversity or cross-cultural unity is usually a marker of this outpouring. In fact, when we look at the origins of modern-day Pentecostalism, it came from a multicultural movement called Jesus' Street Revival. It began when a black man named William Seymour led a prayer gathering, which quickly became a revival in a time of racial segregation and Jim Crow laws. A marker of the Holy Spirit has always been cross-cultural ministry and radical racial justice. And thus the proofs of Pentecost, this evidence, the wind, fire, and tongues, they communicate that God's Spirit is available to all people and that it can dwell in all people. We are all temples for which the Spirit resides. We all have equal access to the Holy Spirit. And this leads us to part four of our story, the prophecy of Pentecost. Notice the way that Peter begins this sermon saying in verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter quotes Joel here, fully understanding Joel's context and what Joel means by last days. The prophet Joel, along with many other prophets in the Old Testament, believed that God's spirit would be poured out on the last days or the end of times. Okay, Similar phraseology happening there. And this is actually a biblical expression for a period of time in which Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father and become king. So it may not be what you traditionally think of as end times, rapture, last days, whatever. This is signifying Christ becoming king. And we know based on Jesus' ascension, just a chapter before, and the outpouring of God's spirit here in Acts 2, that this is happening. That Peter the apostles, the early church, and even those of us sitting in this room are in the last days, or that period between Christ's ascension and his full reign. We are in the era of the outpoured spirit. We are in the era of the outpoured spirit. Peter is saying today is the day. The prophecy has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. We are all empowered as prophets to bear witness to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we continue to see this come true as the events of Acts play out. We see more evidence of tongues, prophecy, healing, discernment, wisdom, teaching, serving, generosity, gifts of the Spirit at work in the early church. In Acts 2, it says many signs and wonders continue to occur, and that newly formed community The beginnings of the church were selling all they owned to give to the poor. In Acts chapter three, Peter heals a a lame man. In Acts chapter five, the apostles are freed by angels from prison. In Acts chapter nine, we see the radical conversion of Saul to Paul and we see him healed of blindness. In Acts chapter nine, we also see a man healed of paralysis and Dorcas restored to life. In Acts chapter 14, we see a cripple healed In Acts chapter 16, we see demons cast out of an unjustly enslaved girl. In Acts chapter 20, we see another man raised from the dead. And in Acts chapter 28, we see a father healed. Over and over and over and over again, we see proofs that the Holy Spirit didn't just end in Acts. It didn't just end in Acts 2 when 3,000 people were baptized. It continued throughout history. And as Alex detailed last week, they continue to see these things happen in the early church. They've been seen throughout history, through the early church fathers, through several revivals, through day-to-day life being the people of God. And we continue to see them in our world today, in the global church. In the word scholar Craig Keener, if we are too accustomed to this notion to catch its full force, if we're too familiar with this idea for it to seem radical, you might imagine Jesus speaking to us and saying, you will be like Isaiah. You will be like Jeremiah. You will be like Deborah. Deborah. You may imagine Jesus saying to you right now, you will be like Mary, the mother of Jesus. You will be like Peter. You will be like Paul. The prophecy of Pentecost is that you have now become a prophet. You are living in the era of the outpoured spirit. Continuing in our story, part five, the purpose of Pentecost. We get to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Peter's finished preaching this incredible sermon, and it says, So those who received Peter's words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the climax of the Acts 2 story. Not the fire, not the wind, not tongues, not even Peter's sermon, but the baptism of 3,000 people. The purpose of Pentecost is witness. Going back to Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, but you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, what? Witnesses. You will receive power to what? Be my witnesses. The purpose of Pentecost is, is witness. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, always leads us to Jesus, always helps us to know Jesus and follow him better. These are the acts of Jesus part two. Worship team, if you want to join me, At the end of every sermon at Midtown, we always end with a spiritual practice. And so now everyone together, let's speak in tongues. I'm kidding. That was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. I had to just slide that one in here. In uh, N.T. Wright's conclusion of his commentary on Acts 2, he writes this. Part of the challenge of this passage is the question, have our churches today got enough energy, enough spirit-driven new life to make onlookers pass any comment at all? Has anything happened which might make people think we're a little drunk? If not, is it because the Spirit is simply at work in other ways? Or is it because we've so successfully quenched the Spirit that there is actually nothing happening at all? I do believe in the creative work of the Spirit. I do believe that the Spirit can change His methods and work in ways that He hasn't previously worked. However. I'm often worried and even haunted by my own supernatural skepticism. I've wondered if it's quieted my witness, if anyone really thinks I'm all that different, if anyone really thinks that God is powerful, I often wonder if my posture is really one of radical openness to God or one of supernatural skepticism. And I guess my question to you today is, which camp do you fall in? Are you challenged to be radically open to God? To be open to Him doing something maybe kind of strange? Or is your supernatural skepticism kept you from doing anything at all. And if you are a skeptic like me, would you consider just cracking the door, opening yourself up to what God may want to do in your life, in this church, in this city, and in this world? And if your answer is even like a tentative or a half-hearted, yes. The next thing to do would be to pray, right? Preparation for Pentecost, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, usually begins with prayer. I would challenge you to specifically ask for God's Spirit this week and in the weeks to come. Luke 11 verse 13 says that God longs to give us the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is ask. But I warn you, asking is the easy part. (laughs) Asking's the easy part. The hard part is being prepared for what comes next. In the words of N.T. Wright, be prepared for wind and fire, for some fairly drastic spring cleaning of the dusty and cold rooms of your life. Are you prepared for the Holy Spirit to nudge you in a moment at work saying, go ask that coworker if you can pray for them? Might seem a little weird, might feel slightly uncomfortable, are you willing? Are you prepared to give radically above and beyond so that no one around you would have need just as the early church did? Are you prepared to be receptive to what the Holy Spirit might be calling and asking you to do? May we, the supernaturally skeptical, radically open ourselves up to God so that we may be witnesses to all the world. And may our preparation begin with prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, repent of my own cynical nature, (laughs) the cautiousness for which I bring to my faith in you. I was challenged by Alex's sermon last week to take risks. I'm challenged to pray for them today. May each and every one of us desire an outpouring of your spirit so that all may know how high, how deep, how wide your love is for us. May many be pointed to you, Jesus, as a result of our radical openness to God, willingness to do something risky, and to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Challenge our hearts today. Speak to us even now as we respond.